Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm Will Gunn, General Counsel of the Legal Services Corporation. Our topic today is a nearly 50-year collaboration between the American Bar Association, the ABA, and LSC in advocating for civil justice for low-income Americans. We have two distinguished guests with us today. Our first guest is no stranger to talk justice. It's LSC President Ron Flagg, who is accustomed to hosting our Talk Justice podcast. Ron has served as LSC's president since 2020, and he formerly served as president of the District of, of Columbia Bar Association, and he chaired the board of directors of the National Veterans Legal Services Program for many years, where we first got an opportunity to work together. I've had the pleasure of knowing our second guest, Reggie Turner, for nearly 30 years. Reggie is president of the ADA, one of the world's largest voluntary professional organizations. In addition to being just the fourth African-American to serve as ABA president, Reggie also served as president of the State Bar of Michigan. He's a member of an exclusive club and that he's only the third person to ever serve as president of both the ABA and the NBA, the National Bar Association the nation's oldest and largest national network of predominantly African-American attorneys and judges. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Will. Reggie, I'd like to start off with you. I know you hail from Detroit, Motown, and you grew up in the 60s and 70s, what some would call a tumultuous period for your city not only a time of great music, but also a time of social unrest. I'd like to just delve a little bit deeper into your background. Uh, Tell us about uh, why you became a story and just share a little about your story, why you became a lawyer and share a little bit about your story. Thanks. Well, uh, many lawyers get into the legal profession for altruistic reasons. And uh, I am, one of those, I think. Uh, I often tell the story about the time um, in Detroit when we had the riot in 1967. My parents were both um, traumatized. And of course, as children, we were were even more traumatized by the burning of buildings uh, throughout the city, gunshots going off. It was literally the most scary time in my life. And My father, as a Detroit police officer, was on duty 24-7 for several days on end. It was a riot lasted seven or eight days, and we didn't see much of him, and we were always worried about him. So after the riot, my parents were very intentional about trying to find some way to to heal our troubled psyches. Um, My three siblings and I were really upset. Uh, We weren't sleeping well. And uh, uh, my parents were looking for some way to, to heal our troubled psyche. And so they found a, 
a program with a brand new organization called Focus Hope that was created by a, a wonderful Catholic priest, uh, Father Cunningham, and one of his dear friends, a woman named Eleanor Josaitis. And they created this Focus Hope program that was a, a city suburban cultural exchange program where they paired white families from the suburbs with Negro families in the city of Detroit. And uh, we were paired with the Latanzio family from St. Clair Shores, Michigan. And it was an epiphany in terms of the bond that my family came to have with uh, the Latanzio family. We learned so much from them about how we had the same family values. Um, we cared about the same issues. And so it really helped me and my siblings learn that race should not be a barrier in any way to friendship, to the fruits of labor, or in any pursuit. And uh, I still remember it like it was yesterday. That was uh, my introduction to what we today call diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I am deeply grateful for the initiative that my parents took. After going down that path and, and deciding to become a lawyer, I understand that you had a uh, unique experience relatively early in your professional career and that you got an opportunity to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, that's a bit more than what I did. My first pro bono case, I, I'll tell you about, and then, I'll, then we'll go to the U.S. Supreme Court, if, I, if you don't mind. Sure. When I was in law school at the University of Michigan, I joined the school's landlord-tenant legal assistance program and did pro bono work for tenants who were having problems in keeping their housing. And I felt so proud of the work that our team was doing to keep people in their homes, particularly in the cold weather. And uh, that's uh, when that pro bono ethic that we uh, pledge in the lawyer's oath came alive for me. And I, and I know that all of you are familiar with the part of the lawyer's oath that says, I shall never reject from any consideration personal to myself, the cause of the defenseless or oppressed or delay anyone's cause for lucre or malice. And that has been something that I've tried to, uh, to observe over the course of, of my career. Uh, with respect to the U.S. Supreme Court case, I did not argue before the court. I was part of a, of a large team of lawyers who were all working pro bono who gathered together. Ted Shaw, I think most of you know about Ted Shaw. He was the general counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. He was the leader of that group. And I learned a tremendous amount from him. Um, and I appeared in the trial court and the court of appeals in the U.S. Supreme Court. I was at counsel table with Ted Shaw and others from our group when those two cases, the Gratz and Gruder cases, were argued in the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's my one and only appearance in the U.S. Supreme Court as a practicing lawyer. And between those two, my first landlord-tenant cases and the uh, Gratz and Gruder cases, I've had a number of pro bono cases. And of course, I don't do as much direct pro bono litigation at this time, but certainly donate funds to the organizations that are doing that work on the ground. I'm in more of an administrative role now, particularly, you know, with my role as uh, president of the American Bar Association. Thank you. Ron, I wanted to go in the same direction with you, if, if I could. 
I know that you have a long history of being involved in providing pro bono services and just being involved in pro bono matters. Can you share a bit about that? Can you uh, tell us about how you got started on that road? Yeah, thanks, Will. And thanks to Reggie uh, on behalf of LSC for joining us today. So I worked before I came to LSC, which was nine years ago. I worked for 31 years at Sidley, Austin, and I had abundant opportunities to do pro bono there. And what stands out for me in those experiences are a couple of things. One, the clients, which I'll come back to in a moment, but also the longer term relationships that were built between the lawyers in our firm and legal aid programs. Uh, I personally did a lot of work. Uh, you mentioned the National Veterans Legal Services Program, the DC Bar Pro Bono Center, the AARP's Legal Counsel for the Elderly, and I did a lot of public education work with Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. So a lot of bridge building, a lot of relationship building, but what stands out many years later are the clients. And my first pro bono client, at least uh, back uh, in my memory at this point, is uh, Rosemary. And Rosemary was a grandmother with uh, two young children and a daughter, the parents of, of those two children who had substance use disorder problems. And uh, I worked with Rosemary to get her custody. And over the years, uh, she came back to me. I, few times with uh, other issues. And uh, eventually those two kids who were like two and four, when I first met them many years ago, uh, I saw them graduate from high school and, and go to college. And it was really inspiring to see how a small bit of work on the part of a pro bono lawyer could empower somebody like Rosemary to enable her to uh, help raise her grandkids and have them be successes in life. So it was, I'm sure, far more rewarding for me than it was for Rosemary or those kids, but that's what stands out to me. Beautiful. Reggie, want to uh, note that as we record this just last week was ABA Day on Capitol Hill. I understand that hundreds of lawyers advocated for legal aid funding and other important causes. Could you describe the efforts and how you think it went? Well, I think it went very well. Every spring, the ABA brings hundreds of lawyers to Washington, lawyers from every state in the country to advocate for issues important to the legal profession and the justice system. Usually we do this in person, meeting with senators and representatives from our home states. But once again, the pandemic forced us to go virtual for the third year in a row. This was the 25th anniversary of ABA Day. The first ABA Day held, was held in 1997. We organized it out of alarm over congressional efforts to cut the Legal Services Corporation entirely. By 1996, Congress had reduced funding for LSC by almost half. After modest results the first year, we knew we had to persevere. That one-time event soon transformed into an annual advocacy event to bring together ABA members and bar leaders from across the nation to the Capitol Hill. Funding for LSC has been a prominent part of our ABA Day advocacy from that first day, and this year was no exception. In fact, advocating for the LSC funding has been our number one legislative issue for many years now. This year, 
nearly 700 ABA members registered to participate from all across the country. They made more than 1,000 direct contacts with legislators via email, phone calls, and social media. We had a terrific bipartisan discussion on the need for increasing LSC funding, featuring the co-chairs of the Congressional Legal Aid Caucus, Representative Mary Gay Scanlon, a Pennsylvania Democrat, and Representative Brian Fitzpatrick, a Pennsylvania Republican. It's worth noting that President Biden's fiscal year 2023 budget includes $700 million for LSC, the largest presidential request in history. So clearly the message is getting through. Other speakers at ABA Day included Angelina Jolie, who spoke about reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act, plus an impressive bipartisan lineup from Congress, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senators John Cornyn, Dick Durbin, Joni Ernst, and Tim Kaine. We also advocated for the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, which helps public access by making it more affordable for young lawyers to go into public service like legal aid. I was very proud of the lawyers who took time out from their practices to advocate for access to justice. They honored the lawyer's oath in doing so. Thanks, Reggie. I, I greatly appreciate that being part of the LSC team and just being a lawyer. I appreciate those efforts. Ron, Reggie just alluded to the fact that when ABA Day got started, the LSC Legal Services Corporation was threatened with being abolished. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what were the arguments and what was the rationale for such a move? Well, I think, let me tell you what the express rationale was and let me talk about, I think, what was going on behind behind those rationales. The express rationales were concerns with the legal aid programs being politicized and engaging in political work rather than legal work. And I think there was also a concern that legal aid, which is largely work done in state courts, should not be federally funded. So those were the types of arguments that were heard going back all the way to the 1970s and certainly up to the mid-1990s and up until maybe the last decade or so, we've heard echoes of some of those things, although uh, Congress has imposed restrictions, very explicit and tight restrictions on uh, any sort of political work or politically oriented work by legal aid programs funded by LSC. And uh, we enforce those restrictions very carefully and make reports to Congress uh, about our oversight work in that regard. So those arguments have largely disappeared and we're in a much better place in 2022 than we were in 1996 in large measure because of the work that the ABA has been doing over the last 25 years and before. Thanks, Ron. Reggie, from your perspective as ABA president, why do you think there's such a strong connection, strong bond, if you will, between LST and ABA? Well, as you know, the ABA has many programs that support our oath and with respect to the need to provide legal services for those who cannot afford legal services. Our four goals are, are serving our members, serving the public, promoting diversity, 
equity and inclusion and promoting the rule of law in the US and around the world. And of course, the pro bono ethic is always a part of all four of those four goals. Again, it's, it's one of the reasons why I first got involved with the organized bar as a student at Michigan Law School, as I mentioned, and uh, getting involved with pro bono work. So this has been really one of the most important things that I've done in my career. Thanks. appreciate it. Ron, of course, LSC is fast approaching its 50th anniversary. Today, here in 2022, what do you see as the biggest challenges facing LSC and how can the ABA help with those challenges? Well, I think simply put, our biggest challenges are the convergence of surges in unmet legal needs with the chronic underfunding of legal aid. And the ABA has played and continues to play an indispensable role in educating Congress and the public about these issues and advocating for increased financial support for legal aid. Let me elaborate on this a bit. LSC's FY 2023 budget request follows decades of chronic underfunding of civil legal aid. Uh, and Reggie alluded to this before. In FY 1994, almost 30 years ago, Congress appropriated $400 million for LSC. LSC's appropriation has increased only slightly from that amount to $489 million in FY 2022. That's not remotely enough to keep up with inflation, much less the increased demand and need for services resulting from recessions and the pandemic that have occurred over the last three decades. Just by one benchmark, adjusted for inflation, LSC's 1980 appropriation of $300 million would be more than $900 million in 2022. And again, we're, we're just at 489 at this point. And the acute underfunding of legal aid has had predictable results. You get what you pay for or fail to pay for in this instance. And what we've gotten is an enormous and growing justice gap. The justice gap is the difference between the civil legal needs of low-income Americans and the resources available to meet those needs. LSC did a justice gap study in 2017, and that study found that 86%, 86% of the civil legal problems of low-income Americans received inadequate or no legal help. Now, you would have thought that a number that high, 86%, couldn't possibly get worse. But LSC, at the end of April, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, will be releasing a new 2022 justice gap study. And that study will show, spoiler alert, that the unmet legal needs of low-income Americans have gotten worse since 2017 and have increased from 86% to a number which I'll hold until the release of the report, but it's over 90%. And you know why is that? Uh, it's not hard to, uh, to guess. The COVID pandemic has significantly disrupted the lives and financial security of tens of millions of Americans across the country. The civil legal needs of low-income Americans have surged, especially in issues 
areas served by LSE grantees, such as eviction, unemployment, domestic violence, and healthcare. Let me just highlight one of those issues to give you a flavor for it. Domestic violence. We've really had a perfect storm over the last couple of years. We've had acute increases in economic and health-related stress combined with measures to require people to stay in place. And what we've seen as a result is a spike in uh, domestic violence across the country. And domestic violence is a priority for our legal aid programs and educating Congress and the public about these surging needs and the uh, chronic underfunding of civil legal aid is something that the ABA does very well at and we're really appreciative for their support in that regard. Thanks, Ron. As we prepare to wrap up here, I'd like to get both of you to comment. Just want to your, do a gut check here. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about whether the access to justice problem will improve in the next few years? Reggie, what do you think? Well, optimism is comforting, but action is most important. And the ABA will continue to have programming like our ABA Day advocacy every year. And we will continue to urge lawyers all across the nation to participate in pro bono work. It's a never ending challenge, um, but it's one that we pledge to meet when we take the oath to become lawyers in this nation. And I know from time to time, people don't think about that oath that they have pledged, but I think when they're reminded that uh, the pro bono ethic is part of a pledge that we made to enter this profession, they come and get involved and provide assistance to those who need it. And it's our job to continue to, to invite them to do so, provide the training for lawyers to engage in pro bono work and to fulfill the rule of law and the pro bono ethic. Thanks. We appreciate that. Ron, how about you? You get the last word here. Are you optimistic or pessimistic that we'll be able to close or at least narrow this justice gap over the next few years? Well, Will, I'd say I'm uh, optimistic and realistic. I'm optimistic that the access to justice problem is receiving and will receive more public attention. During the pandemic, one of the few uh, silver linings is that civil legal needs and the gap in resources to meet those needs have received far greater attention than in the past. Issues like unemployment, evictions, domestic violence have been on the front pages of news sources. For example, just in the last year, over 700 articles uh, have mentioned LSC or our grantees, which is by degrees of magnitude, more attention than we've ever gotten in the past. Now, whether that increased attention will lead to more funding to address those needs, that remains to be seen. But increases to both federal and state resources will not occur absent increased public awareness about the underlying legal problems. And we are doing better on that score. We are doing better about making those legal needs visible to the public, visible to legislators, including in Congress. And uh, that's a necessary step for us to do better in uh, bridging the justice gap. And again, the ABA has been an 
indispensable and longtime ally in making those issues known to Congress and the public. And we are really grateful for that support. Well, thanks, Ron. I want to thank you and Reggie. I want to thank you as well. This concludes our session today on the partnership and longtime collaboration between the ABA and LSC. This concludes Talk Justice, our LSC podcast. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed on this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.